Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to focus on, on God's word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is good that we can come together as a body of believers to study your word. Your word is the sufficient revelation of who you are and how we should think about you. In your word, you reveal uh, the your plan to us from the beginning to the end that we might be properly oriented to uh, to your plan, that we might be able to understand why we are created and the purpose of our life and how we can glorify you. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Revelation, as we study the last things, that we may understand where we are headed, that we may uh, make decisions today that are properly oriented to your direction in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 14 tonight. We have made another milestone moving to uh, another chapter. But before we completely leave chapter 13, I want to remind you of one of the things that was stated there in verses 16 and 17 related to the mark of the beast, that the second beast, the false prophet, would cause all people on the earth to receive a mark on the right hand and on their forehead that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name, uh, the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. In other words, this is going to be a worldwide empire that is going to control all commerce, all buying and selling on the earth. And the primary way in which they're going to do that is through this identification that is some sort of visible mark, a tattoo, um, something else perhaps that is uh, that can be easily seen by someone so they know that their allegiance has been given to the beast. And they understand that the power of the beast comes from the dragon, comes from Satan as seen earlier in the studies that we did earlier in chapter uh, chapter 13, verse uh, 1 and 2, the beast and gets is gets his power from from the dragon. Now, one of the things, several things have to happen before that transpires. There has to be some sort of worldwide ability to control commerce, some way of reading tattoos or some sort of computer chip or something of that nature. There also is uh, the indication that there's going to be some worldwide currency, just as there's one empire, there'll be one worldwide currency. And so I, I found it interesting that today that um, the, tel- uh, the Telegraph in, uh, in Britain had an article, and the headline was that the U.N. wants new, a new global currency to replace the dollar. And so the article by Edmund Conway, their economics editor, begins, In a radical report, the U.N. Conference on Trade and Development has said the system of currencies and capital rules which binds the world economy is not working properly. See, they have to develop some sort of crisis that what's, what we have today can't work in order to replace everything. I'm not saying this is the fulfillment of that prophecy, but it just shows how we're moving in that direction, and that's the pressure in the cosmic system is to move to a one-world government, move to a one-world currency, move to a cashless society, and so that pressure is... Is always there, and this just gives another indication that that is uh, the position of the of the 
of the United Nations and their um, and their goals and objectives. So there's always something indicated in the news that has some relationship to uh, end times. We come to chapter 14. I want to give a little survey and overview of chapter 14. Chapter 14 is really a survey chapter within the flow of events in Revelation. Uh, the writer now stops, pauses, and gives an overview, just as I've been doing many times in various book studies. When you go a long time, people start to lose the forest for the trees, forget where things are headed, what they've done. And what happened starting in chapter, uh, between chapter 10 and chapter 11 is there was a break in the action. Starting with chapter 4 and 5, we had the scene of the heavenly scene, the 24 elders, the four beasts, the four living creatures, rather the four living beings before the throne of God, looking for someone who was worthy to open the scroll. The Lamb of God came forward, and it was the Lamb of God who's qualified to open the scroll because he is the one who was slain for our sins. And so at the end of that scene in Revelation 4 and 5, it is the Lamb of God that comes forward, takes the... Uh, scroll from the Father and begins to open those seals, and each seal represents another judgment on uh, planet Earth. And so those six seal judgments are covered in Revelation chapter 6, and they stop with the sixth seal, and there's again a little pause in action as the scene shifts from what's happening on the earth in terms of these judgments back to what God is doing in terms of preparing and protecting uh, his people, Israel, and the uh, promotion, proclamation of the gospel through the uh, uh, sealing of 144,000. And these 144,000 come from the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not the Mormons. They're none of these cult groups. They are 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes. And they are sealed and protected by God. Now, we'll get into that a little more because that's a key element in in chapter 14. But that shows first you have the judgments and you have God's grace in providing someone to proclaim uh, claim the gospel. And then in Revelation chapter 8, we had the beginning of the trumpet judgments. And you have the trumpet judgments in 8 and 9, and then you have the... Uh, seen in chapter 11 where it stops going through these these judgments and the disc, the focus is on the two witnesses and all of a sudden it, the, the act of forward momentum the chronology has stopped with with chapter 10 and the focus is on the key some key people key events and we looked at the two witnesses we looked at the um, at the at Satan we looked at the woman who fled into the wilderness which is the remnant of Israel during the tribulation period, and then the two beasts in chapter uh, 13, the first beast and the second beast. Now, after going through all that, the original readers plus us would say, okay, where were we when we stopped? And so the writer is coming back, and he's going to give a little review before he goes forward, and that is the function of chapter 14. It is a summary of what happens during the tribulation and what it reveals is future events that uh, not just to the time of John and to the time of us, but but future in terms of the flow of action. It is to bring us back to recognize that God's going to win. It's been pretty negative, especially the last two chapters with uh, the remnant of Israel being pursued by the dragon into the wilderness and then the the first beast, the Antichrist, the second beast, the false prophet, and all of their power and the war that they uh, instigate against the saints of God. This is down stuff, and some of you probably felt that way as we went through uh, lengthy studies on those things, that this is a little, this is really negative. So the writer, John, is going to come back here, and there is, he's going to see three things. In this chapter, this is marked by the initial phrase, then I looked. Let's go. Okay, then I looked. Actually, it's the same word in the Greek in all three of these verses, but the writers translate the same word a little differently. Uh, You don't catch the identification of these things, the connection uh, in the English as easily, but it's the same word in the Greek. Then I looked in verse 1. 
Then we see the second scene in verse 6, Then I saw another angel. And then the third scene is introduced in verse 14, Then I looked. All of those are the same uh, Greek word, the aorist, uh, meaning the aorist tense simply I saw for uh, looking at something. So he's going to use these three distinct scenes to summarize the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over the kingdom of the Antichrist. The kingdom of the Antichrist looks pretty powerful when you finish chapter 13. And then the f- next thing you see, the next thing we're, that is described to us is the fact that the Lamb is standing victorious on Mount Zion with a hun- surrounded by the 144,000. That takes us to the end of the tribulation period to the vict- uh, victorious uh, establishment of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns at the second coming. So it's important to get a time orientation here because we're used to seeing one one chapter, one event follow another, and it's it's easy to get lost here. This is just a summary of what is going to happen, and then as we get into chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, we will see it unfold. But this is that that summary. This is typical of, of Hebrew writing. For example, Genesis chapter 1 goes through the creation in terms of six days, and we get the overview of God's creative week. And we just have about three verses to talk about his creation of man on the sixth day. Then chapter 2 comes in, starting in chapter 2, verse 5, to the end of that chapter, and we see a detailed uh, description of everything that went on on the sixth day of creation. And this is standard uh, uh, Hebrew uh, narrative. And people will come at this and say, oh, well, chapter 1 is one creation story. Chapter 2 is another creation story, and they, they don't uh, blend together uh, very well. And that just betrays a poor understanding of the flow of, of Hebrew writing and how uh, Jews thought or how Hebrews thought. And so that's what we see here is a summary that gets us prepared to, for the coming events in the coming chapters. So in this chapter, we also have some interesting things that find their way into popular uh, religious expression. First of all, there's the 144,000 with the Lamb. And, of course, people think of that as some sort of special group, and it has uh, their allegorical interpretations and other things. And as I pointed out, there are various cult groups that have all tried to uh, identify themselves as the 144,000. You have six angels that carry out judgment. So it is a, it is a chapter that focuses on these, uh, these announcements and these judgments from God's perspective, what's going on in the angelic or heavenly uh, realm. We also see believers playing harps in heaven. You always wondered where that idea came from, that you die, you get your own little cloud and a harp, and you play in heaven. Well, this is the chapter uh, from whence that comes, but it's not something that's true of every believer, and it's not something that is implies to everybody that's in heaven uh, all the time. It's just not going to be that boring. In fact, it's going to be very exciting all the time, and we just don't have any idea of what that's going to be. Then we have an angel proclaiming the gospel, flying through the heavens throughout the earth, proclaiming the gospel to every nation and people and tongue and tribe. I mean, how much more universal can the text be, and how unusual is this going to be that there is an angel flying through the, the heavens proclaiming, uh, proclaiming the gospel with no response? You th- Think it's tough now trying to witness to your next door neighbor. Well, just wait till you get into the middle of the tribulation. You have angels trying to witness to people with no takers. And then we also have the introduction of the imagery that's used here as well as in Revelation uh, 17 and 18, the imagery of the uh, grapes of wrath and the vineyard and uh, God uh, pouring forth his wrath on man, and the, all this imagery and terminology was picked up by a by a uh, mid nineteenth century feminist by the name of Julia Ward Howe, and on that basis, a total misapplication of the text. She applied it to the Union Army in the 
American War of Northern Aggression, or the Civil War, as you were taught in school. And so that's the basis for the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And anybody who believes in literal interpretation as a, as a Christian should never, uh, never sing this hymn because it is just an absolute distortion um, by a pretty confused Unitarian uh, liberal moment of liberal theological persuasion, uh, and just as she rips it out of context and, and implies it's really interesting. Not long ago, I was at a funeral, and there was an old friend of mine who was a couple of couple of people over from me, <clears throat> and um, they closed the funeral singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You were there, remember? You looked over at me and kind of did this. I'm talking to Alan. And, uh, but this other friend of mine who was sitting over there kind of leaned back. There was somebody in between us who looked at me and he said, they don't know their history, do they? <laughs> so, anyhow, that's, that's where this imagery, uh, derives. And then we also have at the close of the chapter the imagery of the blood up to the horse's bridles. Blood flowing out to 180 miles up to the horse's bridles. Of course, that raises a question. Is this literal or is this uh, just figurative speech use of hyperbole or some other figure of speech? So there's a lot of things that, that come out of this particular, uh, this particular chapter. There are three parts to the chapter, these three scenes, each indicated by that phrase, then I saw. In the first scene, the focus is on the lamb and the 144 uh, thousand. Uh, the scene is at the really is at the end of the tribulation. John is is actually been at this point. He's close to the midpoint or just after the midpoint, and now he's going to bring us back to understand how things end. That one thing we know for sure is that we win and they lose, and in between it gets pretty messy. But Jesus is going to win at the end, and so the readers are reminded that Jesus Christ is ultimately victorious. And so this is the victory scene at the end of the tribulation, picturing uh, the Lord Jesus Christ triumphant on Mount Zion, and the 144,000 with him seem to be functioning as sort of a special honor guard uh, with him as they surround him. In the second scene, we go from verse 6 down through verse 13, and there we'll see three angelic heralds. These are angels who have announcements that they are making, and there are four announcements, though, and the fourth comes from an unidentified voice from heaven. The first announcement is covered in verses 6 through 7, as that angel flies through heaven proclaiming the gospel to the entire world. The second angel, in verse 8, announces the doom of Babylon, the capital of the Antichrist kingdom, his economic capital. And the third, covered in verses 9 through 11, announces the certain judgment on those who worship the beast and his image and receive the mark. The fourth announcement then follows that in verses 12 and 13, uh, mostly in verse 13, and this is an unidentified voice that uh, pronounces a blessing on those who are martyrs in the tribulation and who follow the Lord and obey God uh, during the tribulation period. In section 3, it's covered in uh, verses 14 through 20, and this section depicts the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is overseeing the judgment upon the earth through these angels, again, three more angels for a total of six angels in the chapter, three more angels who carry out and, uh, the, and oversee these particular judgments. Now, remember, this is a whole series of judgments here that are not part of the chain of threes, the three seal judgments, three trumpet judgments, and we have yet to get into the three bowl judgments. So this deals with judgments that are different from those. So as I've laid out the our chronological understanding of the of the tribulation, we'll first have the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments, and that brings the first half to a close, and then you have the uh, death of the uh, two witnesses. They are going to be uh, executed by the Antichrist. Their bodies are laid out to be viewed, and after three days, God is going to bring them to life. They're going to rise from the dead, and they're going to ascend to heaven. Then there's a huge earthquake, and then there's going to be um, 
only 7,000 killed, and the rest are going to give glory to the God of heaven. This is when a majority of Jews in Jerusalem and Israel are saved, and in response to Jesus' warning that when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, then flee to the wilderness. And so then they flee to the wilderness, and this is picked up in chapter uh, chapter 12, or yes, chapter 12 as the... Um, as the woman, being Israel, flees before the dragon into the wilderness where God protects the woman, that is the remnant of Israel, during the second half of the tribulation period. Then on the flip side, we see the growth of the power of the Antichrist and the false prophet during the last half of the tribulation period. And then this chapter brings us back to a realization that uh, Jesus Christ is going to bring about these final judgments on the kingdom of the Antichrist, on Satan, on evil, and then he will establish his his kingdom on the earth. So this is a great chapter for getting into some of the details and just an overview of the uh, of the chat of the uh, last half or last part of the tribulation period. So we come to Revelation 14:1 and John says then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now the perfect tense of the participle there translated standing indicates that he that this is completed action. He has come to stand there and this is his focal point. He sees the Lamb of God surrounded by these 144,000, and they are standing on Mount Zion. Now, the Lamb, the term the Lamb is the favorite term John uses in this gospel to identify the Lord Jesus Christ. He's some 27 times in the book of Revelation. And it focuses our attention on the fact that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins. The Lamb takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. We pick up that uh, the images of the uh, ram that was caught in the thicket that was the substitute for Isaac and the lamb that is uh, uh, killed for the Passover meal at the time that the Jews came out of Exodus and the, and the lambs that are used in the various other sacrifices in the Levitical offerings. And then we come to John's statement, in John the Baptist statement in John 1, when he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that this is, this is the focal point of what makes Jesus, Jesus, as indicated in his name, Yeshua, the one who saves his saving work on the cross where he died on the cross as our as our substitute. So he is now the lamb standing. The last time he's identified as the lamb is back in chapter 4 and 5 when he is coming forward to take up the scroll and beginning to open those seals at the beginning of chapter 6. So now the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Now what is Mount Zion? Now this is a term that is somewhat fluid. Now there's some debate over this. Some people think that that uh, this is heaven. This is just used in a in a in a way that um, uh, is used somewhat uh, symbolically for heaven. That Jesus is standing in heaven, but that that doesn't really fit how the word is used in Scripture. Zion is used. The term Zion is used 162 times in the Bible, and in nearly every single one of them, it refers to. Uh, some feature of the city of Jerusalem or literally the, the kingdom of Judah or Israel. It's used in a, in a way that's somewhat fluid. Sometimes Zion refers to the Temple Mount. Sometimes it refers to the next mount to the west of where the temple is today, which is to currently called uh, Mount Zion. Sometimes it refers because it is the center focal point of the nation. It refers to the kingdom of Judah or to the nation as a whole. So the the point here is he is on this specific location, and this is distinct from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is at the end of his return 
We've gone through the six stages of the Battle of Armageddon, and he ends up at the uh, at the Mount of Olives. And in Zechariah 14.4 states that at the conclusion of all of that fighting and bringing the Jews back to Jerusalem and his final confrontation with the Antichrist and the false prophet, we read in Zechariah 14.4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of mountains will reach to Azel. We don't know where that is, somewhere down in the Dead Sea area. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him the purpose of the, and uh, and what this shows is a time when when the uh, Jesus returns as the Messiah at the end of the tribulation period, and as the Jews have been trapped within the city, much as they were, uh, the Jews were trapped in the old city in 1948 during the war for independence, and it took a uh, special uh, tactic. By the, uh, his, by the Haganah to eventually carve their way through. They utilized a, an old Roman uh, back road that cut through the mountains in order to circumvent the Arab army, and they were finally able to come in and to bring food and water and relief to just a few thousand or a few hundred uh, Jews that were trapped inside the old city and to rescue them. They weren't able to take control of the old city at that time. They did not gain control of Jerusalem until 1967. But it's that same kind of thing. There will be a group of Jews that are going to be trapped in the city, a group of Jewish believers, and when Jesus returns, then he is going to split the Mount of Olives uh, to give them an escape route. They're going to be able to come out the east side of Jerusalem and escape through that valley, and then the Lord is going to march victoriously into Jerusalem through the eastern gate, probably not what is currently seen as the eastern gate because that was uh, that's just the eastern gate in the wall that was built uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, this would be a this would be the original site of the gate. He's just going to blast his way through the wall. Uh, the the Muslims who have a Strange views on a lot of things built a have built a, uh, a cemetery there because they believe that'll keep the Messiah out, so he won't get, go on ground that has been contaminated by dead bodies. And they walled up the eastern gate, so uh, he can't come out. But he's just going to blast away the wall and go in and establish his kingdom, judge the Antichrist and the false prophet, send them to the lake of fire, confine Satan in, uh, in, in chains in the bottomless pit, and then he's going to establish his kingdom. That will be the centerpiece of his government will be from Mount Zion. That is what is being talked about here. This is a view that looks forward to the victorious establishment of the kingdom at the end of the tribulation period with the Lord Jesus Christ surrounded by these 144,000. Now, who are the 144,000? Well, these are the same and must be considered the same as those mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. Unfortunately, uh, there are some people who try to make a distinction, but John is very clear when he talks about something different. He says, another. I saw another angel. I saw another angel and another angel. We see this several times in chapter 14. So he doesn't say, I saw another 144,000. It's such an unusual number that we must conclude that this is a, takes us to view the 144,000 that are first mentioned back in chapter, uh, chapter one. Now there are several, I mean, excuse me, chapter, chapter seven. Now there are several th- questions that we ought to address here. When are these 144,000 saved? There are different ideas that are presented on this. One is that they're saved, the 144,000 are saved in the second half of the tribulation. These are all views presented by solid, respected, dispensational scholars. Uh, one man believes that they're not saved until the second half. That's the primary arena of their ministry is the second half of the tribulation uh, period. 
Others say that they are saved after the rapture, before the tribulation itself begins. That may be, that may be true. Others say they are saved immediately after, uh, after the rapture. And I think that is probably true, and I'll point out why as we go through this particular passage. Uh, second, who are they? Who are they? Are, is this a symbolic number? Is this just sort of an ideal, ideal representation of, of Jews? Who exactly are, uh, are these, are these 144,000? Are they Christians? Well, they're Christians, but they're not church-age believers. The term Christian was first used in Antioch to refer to those who were followers of Christ, and those in the in the tribulation are still going to be followers of Christ. They'll be called Christians, but the term Christian is not necessarily a church-age term. It's anyone after the cross who has trusted Christ as Savior. Third question is, what is their purpose? What is their Function And this is something that we sort of have to uh, deduce from the text because nothing really states uh, their purpose, their, their design. We think of them as evangelists and leaders in Israel, and all of these things are probably true, but nothing actually uh, states that. Uh, fourth, we have to ask the question, what is their sealing? What's the purpose of the sealing? What's the extent of the sealing? Do they... Are they sealed from all threats so that all 144,000 survive through the seven years of the tribulation and come out the other end alive? Are they being pictured here in their physical mortal bodies as 144,000 who have victoriously survived the seven-year tribulation? Or were they martyred through the tribulation period and they are standing there on the uh, on, on Mount Zion in resurrection bodies uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is, um, those are just some of the questions that we have to answer. Okay, the first question, when are they saved? As I pointed out, they are probably saved very close to the beginning of the tribulation. They could be saved after the rapture, between the rapture and the tribulation, but they are not saved later than the very beginning of the tribulation period. I would say that one, one evidence of that is that chapter 6 that describes the six seal judgments focuses on what, God, what, what the judgments are doing on the earth, and then chapter 7 takes us back to the same point of origin and explains what's happening from God's perspective, what God is doing in providing for uh, the nation Israel in terms of his grace during the tribulation, uh, during the tribulation period. One way in which that is substantiated uh, by this particular text and description here is if you look down to the end of verse 4, the end of verse 4, the last sentence in verse 4 states, These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. I don't know how the saving of these 144,000 in the middle of the tribulation or the second half could cause them to be first fruits. First fruits indicates the very beginning, the very first. Jesus Christ was the first fruits of resurrection. There's none resurrected with resurrection body prior to him. So these 144,000 would be the first Jews saved, I would think, after, after the rapture. And so this puts their salvation very early, and they have a very special mission, which is why they are described in such uh, such distinct terms. A further support for this is that the verbs that are used to describe them are verbs that indicate um, that they're no longer going through uh, temptation. For example, in verse 4, we read, these are the ones who were not defiled with women. So, it in, And I will talk about exactly what that means in a minute, but the fact that it's used in the past tense would indicate that this isn't could no longer be uh, be changed, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, indicating a past uh, past action. So it would indicate that that these things all happened uh, somewhat uh, somewhat earlier. Now, when John, um, let me see. 
before I get get ahead of myself, let me address one other thing. They have their characteristics are given in verse four. They are morally pure male virgins. They are spiritually pure. That's the emphasis on this word that they are not defiled. This does not mean or indicate that there's something defiling about sexual intimacy. Uh, it's only defiling when it's outside of marriage. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 12 verse 4 says that the marriage bed ought not to be defiled. And so it is not something that indicates that, but the unique word that's used here for uh, def- being defiled has a religious connotation. And so this would speak of being uh, sexual immorality within the context of like the fertility religions or uh, some sort of uh, perverted a perverted worship. So they are not defiled in, in, in any way with, with a spiritually, sexually defiling um, uh, operation. And these are the ones who then follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This statement indicates their loyalty, their perseverance in sticking with the Lord throughout the tribulation period. It is a summary statement indicated by a present tense or characteristic habitual use of the present tense uh, verb there. And then we see they were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and the Lamb. And then verse 5 states, And in their mouth was found no deceit, so they are truthful and truth speakers, and they are without fault before the throne of God. So they are, they fulfill their mission, and there is no criticism from heaven for their uh, life and ministry. As a result, they're given a new song that only they can sing. This is described in verse 3. So I've sort of worked through this passage um, backwards a little bit. But that brings us to the last question is, are they, do they survive the tribulation? Is that the purpose of the sealing or were they martyred? Now there are good scholars, good biblical scholars and good thinkers and well-known men in, in uh, the study of biblical prophecy that take both views. Men like John Walvert at Dallas Seminary, Ed Heinsohn at Liberty and several others take the view that they, they survive, that the seal protects them from everything during the tribulation, during the tribulation period. Then there are others like uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Thomas who spoke at the conference here last March and he believes that they are martyred. The best argument that I've seen for their survival is just from the idea of, uh, of the sealing, that the sealing means that they are completely protected by God's, by God's power. However, the best argument I think that we could use for their martyrdom is that at the end of verse 3, we read that these were the 144,000 who were, past tense, were redeemed from the earth. All of these past tense verbs here indicate that by the time they're on the on Mount Zion, the threat of uh, being defiled or failing is past and that they were redeemed from the earth using the preposition apo in the Greek, which indicates uh, separation, that they are saved away from the earth and removed from the earth, uh, supports that. It, the apo can also indicate origin, but that really wouldn't mean anything in this passage that they're from the earth. Well, everyone's from the earth. So that wouldn't be a significant, meaningful nuance to the word apo. So that phrase would indicate they were redeemed. They realized their salvation and deliverance from the earth in the midst of, of, of persecution. The sealing of God protects them from the judgments of God that come upon the earth during the tribulation period, but it does not protect them from the martyrdom. In fact, when you go back and look at Revelation chapter 7, the first half of the chapter deals with the sealing of the 144,000, and the second half deals with the martyrs. And the same thing happens here is that at the end of the, uh, at the end of this section, when we get into the second period, the second part of the vision, there is a conclusion. Here is the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is in reference to the 144,000. 
And John says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, there's a spirit that the rest, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. This obviously takes place before the end of the tribulation period, but it is again an indication of, of the fact that there, these will not survive in their physical bodies. And so they are with the Lord in their resurrection body as he has returned uh, return glorified at the end of the tribulation period, they will be among uh, those who return with him. The church will be with him, and these martyrs, these tribulation martyrs, will have returned or will return with him. Now, John continues the description in verse 2, and he says, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a major waterfall such as Niagara Falls or uh, something else of that nature, Victoria Falls in Africa, or any kind of waterfall. But when you're standing right next to the waterfall, you can't hear anything else because it's just a steady roar of of, of water. I remember some years ago I was on a uh, camping expedition up in the North Woods in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And at the end of this trip, we were to take a th- have a three-day solo on the beach of Lake Superior. And Lake Superior has a pretty steady, uh, has a pretty steady surf. It is an extremely large lake. And while you're sitting there on the beach, you have these waves coming in and it's just a steady roar. And if somebody were to walk up behind you in the woods and step on every twig that they could step on, you wouldn't hear them because of the noise of the waters. So when John is describing this and he says the voice from heaven is like the voice of many waters, that's what he's describing. It is a enormous sound. It is a roar of of like a roar of water or a waterfall uh, coming to him and cannot be missed. Missed. It's like the voice of loud thunder just continuously uh, rolling on. And the voice of heaven is often described this way. Jesus' voice is described this way in Revelation 1.15, again in Revelation 19.6. Same thing in the Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 1.24 and 43.2 use this same imagery to describe God's voice from heaven. So he hears this sound like many waters, a loud thunder, hears this roll, and then he hears music. He hears the sound of harpists. Now, these are not the church-age believers who are now sitting on clouds strumming a harp. He heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. So those who are singing are playing this new song, and it's before the four living creatures and the elders. Now, the four living creatures... We know are an order of angels similar to the cherubs and seraphs. And the elders, these are the church-age believers. So those singing the new song are different from either the seraphs or cherubs and different from the uh, resurrected, rewarded, raptured church-age believers referred to as elders. And no one could learn that song. So apparently these are, this is a group of angels, an angelic choir who now sings this, and it is a song that relates to the experience of the 144,000 on the earth. We run into this phrase, a new song, several times in Scripture. Unfortunately, people who haven't studied the use of the phrase too much use this to try to defend contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian worship. And they come along and they say, well, the Bible says we need to sing a new song. It's all, that's new kind of music. Every generation has, has new music. But that's not what this phrase means. When you go through the scriptures, and especially in the Psalms, and read how this phrase is used, it always refers to a response after a new manifestation of God's grace and his deliverance. So that because there are new circumstances and a new act of God in providing deliverance or salvation, there is now something new to write about, not a new kind of music, but a new song, new content to express what God has done uh, in history once again in delivering his people. This is used in passages such as Psalm 30, 
33.3, Psalm 40, verse 3, Psalm 96.1, just to name a few. These emphasize the fact that this is a fresh response, new music, new poetry that's written to describe another act of God in deliverance. And so that's what happens here. This song uh, expresses the gratitude of the 144,000 for the way God has worked in their life, protected them and their experiences on the earth. And so no one can learn the song, no one can sing the song, no one understands it except those 144,000 because of what they went through on the earth. Then we come to... Uh, then we come to verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. So they have uh, never had any sort of sexual involvement. They're not defiled with women. This doesn't mean that somehow or imply that somehow uh, sexual relations are defiling, but it is a certain kind of sexual relationship that is defiling, and this is one that is outside of marriage, one whether it's it's sex between two people of the same sex or, or different sex, it is still defiling because it is outside of the of the boundaries of God's word, and so these are they're morally and spiritually pure. They are devoted, completely loyal to the Lamb, and follow Him wherever He goes. And they are of the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And then in verse 5, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So that would also indicate that they're raptured and have been uh, and are now glorified without a sin nature. Then we come to verse 6. Verse 6 is the second, uh, the second vision, the second viewing, the second scene. And in starting in verse six, we see a we see three angels who are going to make announcements uh, to the human race, and these announcements are confirmations of judgment. What is about to take place? It, it, it is stated as if it's already happened, but it hasn't. We're still in the early part of the second half of the tribulation, but it, it is confirmation of what will happen. So John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel always relates to the fact that God provides a solution for sin. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers looked forward to God's provision. In the New Testament, in the church age, they look back to God's provision. But the gospel is always the same. Faith alone in the specific content of the promise and that specific of the content of the promise will differ whether you're before or after the cross. And that gospel is proclaimed to all those who dwell on the earth, to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now, this is uh, directly in contrast, in context, with Revelation 13:7, which states that the Antichrist is given authority over every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Um, if you have a New King James or King James, people is left out of the uh, verse in 13:7, but it's it's missing in the Textus Receptus, but it's present in all the other all the other uh, manuscript groups, so it should have been there. Uh, so here we have God in His grace once again proclaiming the gospel to those who are going to refuse it. Notice God doesn't stop just because they refuse it and just because in his omniscience he knows they will refuse it. He continues to make the gospel clear, demonstrating his grace to everyone. And so the angel announces the gospel to who? To those who dwell on the earth. And that phrase we keep seeing refers to those who are permanently negative to the gospel throughout the tribulation period. It's not just talking about people who live on the earth, but those who have an earthbound mentality and an earthbound orientation. And so the content of what he says relates to this judgment that's coming. In verse 8, he said, we read, and... And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, 
is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So this is talking about the fact that, that the city of Babylon itself, literal Babylon, I believe, will be rebuilt. The only way that we can handle this, we'll get into more of a discussion on the future of Babylon when we get into uh, the 17th and 18th chapters and the evidence for that. But everywhere we find the mention of the word Babylon in the Bible, it always refers to this literal city. And unfortunately, people have come to Revelation and said, well, since Babylon is really just just pretty much a dust bowl now, and there are just a couple of, of small Arab villages there, uh, that's, it's, the prophecy of its destruction has already happened, so we, we, we ought to understand this in a symbolic or allegorical sense. But there's no support from that in Scripture. The prophecy in Isaiah 13 that Babylon would be destroyed has never been fulfilled. It is, uh, it, it, that prophecy says it would never again be inhabited, and there have continued to be uh, dwelling places there, small villages on the side of ancient Babylon up to the present time. So the prophecies of, Revela- I mean, of Isaiah 13 have never been fulfilled. Thus Babylon as a power base, center of power, will be rebuilt in the tribulation period and then finally destroyed. Babylon being the source, going back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11, the source of the Nimrod revolt against God and the source of much of false religion and the source of much mythology and all kinds of different uh, uh, polytheistic religions had their birth there along with the birth of various uh, mystery and mystical uh, religions. So that's the uh, background for understanding the statement that she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Fornication there refers to spiritual adultery, which refers to disobedience to God and seeking other gods and not being faithful or loyal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created uh, the heavens and the earth. So this announcement is that Babylon is judged because she is the source of all of this false religion, and she is going to have a special judgment in the tribulation period. Then we have a third angel. So we have three angels in this second vision. The first, uh, the first angel announces the gospel. The second angel announces the destruction of Babylon. And the third angel uh, announces the judgment, the certain judgment on anyone who worships the beast and his image. And I believe that these three announcements take place early in the second half, or at least early enough, to where people who, once the Antichrist and false prophet begin to put the mark of the beast on people, this will inform the world that taking that mark is a sign of allegiance to Satan and his two beasts and is irreversible against God, and it will bring about a judgment. It is a religious decision to reject God and to worship Satan. The religion in the end times is certainly going to be occultic and demonic. So the third angel says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is a phrase meaning they're going to receive divine judgment. Um, He'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, that is, his wrath, his judgment. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. See, when they are sent to the lake of fire, they are guarded, just as we have guards in prison today, they are guarded by a a group of angels who will make sure or oversee their judgment for eternity. And so they will be tormented and brought to their punishment in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, that sweet little Jesus that all of the uh, ecumenical World Council of Churches people want to, uh, want to uh, use to misrepresent the biblical Jesus can't quite gel with the Lamb of God uh, overseeing the, their eternal punishment in the lake of fire, except that is exactly what the, what the Scripture teaches. Verse 11, In the smoke of their torment, 
ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. Now, in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion about whether uh, everlasting punishment is eternal or just for a short time, and then there is the annihilation of, of their soul. But that is clearly... Uh, not the case in 14.11. It is a judgment that goes on forever and ever with no rest day and night, and this is for those who worship the beast in his image, the idol that the false prophet constructs, and whoever receives the mark of his name. No believer in Jesus Christ will receive the mark of the beast. It won't happen. And uh, those who receive the mark of the beast are equivalent to the earth dwellers who reject God, reject the gospel, and will never respond to it. Then we come to the last two verses in the second section. and talks about what is necessary in the life of these believers, how they must endure through the tribulation. They must endure by keeping the commandments of God, These aren't the Old Testament commandments, not the Ten Commandments, but it's keeping the mandates of Scripture, the uh, positive commands to pray without ceasing, to uh, study the Scriptures regularly, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. All of these are commands in Scripture. Those who keep those commands and the faith, that is the faith, the doctrine of Jesus. This is what is necessary in order to survive and persevere through the uh, testing of the tribulation period. And in verse 13, then John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, now this is the unidentified voice. We had three announcements from three angels, and now there's an unidentified voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, a special blessing upon those who are martyred during the second half of the tribulation. Yes, says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is speaking here, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. In other words, they're resting from all of the horrors of the tribulation, all that that called upon them, and then uh, their works follow them, which will, in terms of their future reward, at the end of the tribulation period. And then starting in verse 14, we see the uh, overview of the divine judgment as being carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's pictured in verse 14 as the one who is sitting above the earth on a cloud. Uh, John says, I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his uh, head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now the picture of the crown indicates that he is ready to assume his position as the Uh, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Davidic king who's going to establish his kingdom. The sharp sickle indicates that he is bringing about the end of judgment upon the, the earth and the human race. Now, the phrase son of man is an important phrase to pay attention to here because it emphasizes the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, his humanity is a humanity of judgment. He is one who is able to judge human beings because he himself is fully human. The two titles are used of Jesus are the Son of God and the Son of Man. Son of God emphasizes his deity, that he's 100% fully God. Son of Man indicates his humanity, he's 100% man. He has a human nature, but without a sin nature, so that he is uh, 100% God and 100% man. The two natures don't mix or intertwine, but they are united together in one person, and that is the uh, hypostatic called the hypostatic union. Now, the interesting thing about this phrase in the Greek is that the Greek doesn't have an article there. In the English, it says, the Son of Man. Now, I think that's a good translation in English because in English, we make a distinction between we have an indefinite article A and a definite article D. In Greek, many times you have a a phrase or a title that is given without the article, but 
the absence of the article and the nature of the phrase emphasizes its uniqueness, its distinctiveness, and that it is definite. In Greek, it's actually it's wrong when you discuss the Greek article to ever call it the definite article because there is no indefinite article. So the article has a variety of uses in terms of Greek, and in several places, uh, one of uh, uh, one of which in Revelation one thirteen. Uh, several places in the New Testament, the phrase and the title "Son of Son of Man" is used without the article because it's stretching, stressing the uniqueness of this particular individual. Revelation one thirteen at the beginning, when John is on the Isle of Patmos, he said that he, all of a sudden he heard a noise behind him, and he turns around, uh, noise like many waters. And he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like Son of Man. No article there either, but it is clearly definite in an English sense in the way we uh, use the article. Uh, John 5.27 is another important passage that uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about his role in judgment and he says that God is the one who has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is, no article in the Greek, because he is the Son of Man. Now, John 5 is an extremely important passage for understanding the delegation of judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll come back next time and begin in John chapter 5, verse 22, to see what Jesus says about his being given by the Father the right to judge the human race and why. So uh, John 5.22 states it very clearly, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So we'll start there uh, next Tuesday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded that there is always uh, divine accountability, and there is going to be judgment for evil, in the tribulation period, a judgment on Satan, a judgment upon those who have rejected grace, rejected the gospel, those who have sought to establish uh, the dominion of Satan, the kingdom of man on this earth, in uh, opposition to you, and that in the end it is your love, your grace, it is the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is victorious and will establish his kingdom upon the earth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.